Blog Talk Radio. Good, uh, good evening. Uh, welcome to NJSBA's program, uh, Conversation on New Jersey Education. Uh, my name is Ray Penny. I'll be your host for this evening's program uh, on what board candidates should know before taking office. If you want to participate, you can dial 1-347-989-8904 and press 1. And uh, Kristen, who is working our uh, switchboard, uh, we'll get your name and uh, your question and pass it on to me before I ask you the question. So that's one three four seven nine eight nine eight nine zero four, or you can go to our chat room and, and just um, log into the chat room. There's no fee for logging into the chat room, and you can type in your question then. Um, with me this evening uh, is uh, uh, Terry Lewis, who is a field service representative with uh, New Jersey School Board Association. Welcome, Terry. Hi, Ray. Hi, Ray. How are you this evening? I am great. How are you? I am excellent. Looking forward to the show. Okay. And I believe Carl Tanksley, uh, who is the director of our legal and labor relations department. Carl, are you on the line too? Ray, I am here. How's everybody doing tonight? Uh, we're doing great. Um, before we get started, uh, this is for school board candidates. Well, I guess it could be for anyone from the public too, about the role, basically what candidates should know before taking office and that we go over cursory over what the role the board is. Um, but you know what? I think, and I didn't tell Terry or Carl this, but uh, one of the things they should know about a little bit is who New Jersey School Board Association is. And Terry, uh, could you tell them what the field service department is? You know, we refer to the field service department as pretty much uh, the air traffic controller for the association. So we actually go out and we meet uh, with local boards of education on their sites um, and assist them with anything that might pertain to board business, governance issues, uh, superintendent searches, strategic planning, goal setting, any types of workshops that they might need. And we also tell them to give us a call with any questions. If we don't answer it, we know the right department at New Jersey School Boards to refer them to. That's correct. And I will add one little thing. Uh, if you learn anything as a new board member, you find out who your field service representative is um, because they're done by geography and county. So uh, that's usually your first phone call as uh, is to the air traffic controller, as Terry calls them. Uh, and they will re- usually steer you uh, in the right direction. Um, Carl, uh, a lot of people don't, you know, may not, if they're a candidate, they may not know what our legal and labor relations department does. Okay, right, that's easy. Legal and labor relations deals with all kinds of legal issues that pop up from time to time, be it issues coming before the commissioner, be it uh, before the school ethics commission, or before the local courts. So what we do is try to provide boards of education and board members guidance with how to address various legal issues that pop up. Uh, same thing with labor negotiations. Uh, we try and provide assistance and guidance with regard to uh, data that might be necessary for negotiations, with regard to historical salary uh, guides and salary information, uh, all kinds of information that board members may need or may want to review when making decisions about their particular district, historical trends and all kinds of data that we, we analyze on, a, on an annual basis. And I would uh, like to add to both Carl and Terry's departments that they work for both the whole board and they work for 
the individual board members. So if you have an individual question, you want to think things out, you can call either our legal label relations or field service departments. Uh, and that's a, actually a good way to think things, some issues through. Uh, I'm going to start with the first one. I'm going to go to you, Carl. Um, when people run for the school board, they often do not realize that there are a lot of legal restrictions on their role as a, uh, their duties. Uh, and some of we'll get into a lot of them over the course of this conversation. Um, but some of them have to deal with conflicts of interest. Uh, could you just go over if a, someone's a candidate and they get elected and they have a relative or, or someone else who works uh, either in their district or outside of their district? Sure. Uh, we have a, a fairly um, diverse body of case law with regard to conflicts of interest when it comes to family members in our state. Our school ethics commission has been very active in providing guidance to board members and wants to set forth some clear guidelines. So I think as a candidate, what you will want to be concerned about is whether you have any immediate family members or relatives that are employed in the district. Now, immediate family member means someone who is a parent, sibling, spouse, or child residing with you in the household. Uh, so they have to actually live with you to fall in that category. And the categories are important because it depends on what category a person is or a relative is in as to what limitations you might have as a board member. So the first category is immediate family, parent, sibling, spouse, or child residing with you in the household. Second category is a relative. And a relative is, uh, as you might think, anybody else who is not an immediate family. Could be, uh, could be your cousins, nieces, nephews, could be your father-in-law, mother-in-law, brother-in-law, could be uncles, aunts, grandparents, any other relative connected to you by blood, marriage, or adoption who is not a, an immediate family member by definition. Also, uh, along with that, we have this catch-all phrase called others, which you have to be concerned about if you're running for office as a board member. Now, others might be someone you're co cohabitating with or an emancipated child who, who uh, you used to live with, obviously, but you're, you're no longer living with. Now, because you have uh, any individual in any of these three categories, it doesn't preclude you from running for office. Actually, you can, but it does limit your activities when you become a board member, uh, and it have, places some limitation on uh, your negotiation ability or ability to participate in negotiations, and it provides some limitations uh, when it comes to evaluating uh, personnel like the superintendent or any other person who has either direct or indirect authority over your uh, immediate family member or relative. So does that uh, give a, a, a brief synopsis of a, a conflict of interest in our state? Yeah, and I know we do whole programs on this. Uh, two things I want to do a quick follow-up. One, uh, if a board member has a relative uh, who's employed in education or they think there might be a conflict, would you advise them to go to their board attorney? Every school district uh, board has a board attorney just to get clarification before they start as to where they see their role. Yeah, one thing I always say to board members during training is that with ethics in particular, if you have a connection or a relation to a matter or to a person that is different than other board members, um, be it that you know them from church or from they were your former babysitter or there's some other connection there that is not listed in statute or even one that is confusing because it's a gray area, you want to talk to your board attorney. It's always better to ask the question first before you uh, take action than find out later on that you probably shouldn't have acted on that matter. So if there's ever a question 
always go to the board attorney and seek advice, seek information. Or if your board attorney is not available to you, you can give school boards a call. Give your legal labor relations department a call, and we'll be more than glad to help you out. Uh, one other thing, and you mentioned, and we'll get to this later, but um, you mentioned uh, the School Ethics Commission. Uh, the framework for your role as a board member is set in the Code of Ethics, and that's kind of uh, overseen uh, by the School Ethics Commissions. Could you give a brief – because they may not know who the School Ethics Commission is. That's correct. Uh, the School Ethics Commission is established by statute, and the legislature is the one who actually draft, drafted the School Ethics Act and the Code of Conduct for board members. Both those acts together uh, work together to provide the guidance that I mentioned initially. And that guidance generally provides board members with uh, actions that are permissible and actions that are not permissible. The School Ethics Commission is the body or entity created by the statute that actually oversees and implements the School Ethics Act. It's not school boards. It's not the association that does the implementation. We just report information to the SEC. The SEC, the School Ethics Commission, is the body that actually would uh, handle complaints. Uh, it takes, uh, it accepts filings for your personal relative disclosure statements and your financial statements. Uh, handles complaints if any are filed, and it will issue any penalties um, if a board member is found to be in violation of the act. Now, those penalties can range anywhere from a private reprimand, which is basically a, a letter in your board member file saying that, board member, you are in violation of the act. Uh, don't, uh, don't do anything wrong anymore moving forward. Um, the second, the more severe sanction would be a public reprimand where the SEC would, would issue, a, a, issue an order to the Board of Education, to your board, ordering that they read a resolution in a public meeting advising the public that you as a board member did in fact violate the act and kind of a public way of uh, shaming you or humiliating you for a violation of the code of conduct or the act. Uh, the SEC can also issue a suspension against you if the conduct is severe enough, a 30-day or 60-day or 90, even up to a year suspension, depending on uh, the nature of the conduct. And finally, uh, the SEC can actually remove you from office, again, if the conduct warrants removal. But that very rarely happens. Uh, primarily, the SEC is involved with uh, directing board members and providing guidance. One thing I should also say, if you're speaking about penalties, is that the SEC also has a mechanism in place where if you're not sure of whether your conduct would be in violation of the act or not, you can write to them and seek an advisory opinion. Now, that gives you the opportunity to ask the SEC a question about your contemplated conduct to see whether it would be in violation of the act or not. So it takes about four to six weeks. You write a letter to the SEC. It will respond to you, either publicly or privately, and let you know whether your, your, the conduct that you're contemplating would be in violation of the act. So a way to, uh, stay, stay, to avoid running afoul of the law if you're not sure if your conduct might be in violation. All right. Thank you. Um, Terry, most board members yeah. run. Uh, most people run for the board because they want to make change. They want to do. A, they want to serve their community. Uh, but one of the the most important relationships a board member can have, and the whole board can have, is with that of the superintendent. Uh, but they have the different roles, uh, and uh, sometimes the, the board of education member. It's not like being on the town council where you can 
really immediately direct people. Could you explain the role between the board and the superintendent? Absolutely. First and foremost, I don't think a lot of people understand that the superintendent is actually a member of the board, but they are a non-voting member. So that's the first principle. The second principle that they need to understand is that the board hires only one person, and that's the superintendent. The superintendent is responsible for the management of the district. Therefore, they hire um, and direct and carry out the wishes of the board. Now, um, one board member can't direct the superintendent. So it's based on a majority uh, of the board to get anything done. So as a board member, I, you know, I can remember when I was elected and I wanted to, uh, we were changing something in the curriculum. We were over, we were listening to um, what they wanted to do with the English curriculum. Well, I didn't agree with what they were doing, but the rest of the board did. So it was the majority opinion that won out. That doesn't mean they didn't listen to me. It just means that they had more time on the board and they had a, a better idea. So let me go back and recap. You know, the, the superintendent is a member of the board. The board is responsible for oversight of the district through the superintendent, who actually does the management, managing part in the district. And if you want to attain any change, you have to uh, develop that with the majority of the board in order to affect any positive change. So the, the superintendent is basically the, the educational leader of the district. Uh, the board sets the bigger goals, uh, but how do they hold the superintendent uh, accountable? Is there an evaluation process? Absolutely. The uh, board is responsible to evaluate the superintendent at least annually, and that is in statute. Um, it also has to be done by the 30th of June every year. So it, it coincides with the end of the school year. And let me back up because, you, you know, you, you said something that I think is really important. Um, the board has to really come together with, with, with a common vision and a common direction that they want to take the district into. Then enter the superintendent because he, wants, he or she wants to know where are you headed because that's how I will manage the district. So these things shouldn't be done separately. These all should take place at a board meeting, um, and there should be ongoing conversations about the direction of the district, which then helps the superintendent of the board to perform their prospective roles, one from a management standpoint and the other from an oversight standpoint. All right. Uh, so uh, the evaluation process and holding – that relationship with the superintendent, a board can't have success unless they have the superintendent successful. Correct. And, you know, the evaluation process really is a good communications practice. So, you know, you start out the year, and let me take you briefly through a cycle. And it pretty much runs kind of through a school year. So during the summer, the board would sit down, they would develop district goals, that the superintendent would then be responsible to carry out. Um, 
they would be responsible for monitoring those goals as they move along throughout the year, getting progress updates. Where are we? What are we looking at? Have we hit any snags? Um, and then in the spring, they would start the evaluation process. The progress towards the district goals, they look at how the, uh, the, the leadership ability of the superintendent in relation to how they carried out the goals, and then they perform the actual evaluation sometime during the month of May or June. It's really, um, it should be a positive experience. It should be, you know, here's where we are, here's what we've done, uh, this is what we think, uh, your progress was satisfactory, we think we could have done more, what could we have done as a board to help. It's really all about communication. It's not about filling in the blanks and, and saying, here we got it done. It's really good communication between the board and the superintendent if you want to drive student achievement in the district. Uh, just uh, I want to let people know if they want to ask a question, they can call in one three four seven nine eight nine eight nine zero four and press one, and Kristen will get your name and the question you have and send it on to me. And I'll uh, we do have a question uh, from Doug in uh, Hunterdon County, and I'll have him come on. Hi, Doug. Do you want to throw your question out to uh, Terry and uh, Carl and even myself? Sure. Sure. Very good. Thank you for taking my call. Um, so my question is, um, our, our board doesn't seem to be communicative, um, you know, at the individual level. So when there's an opportunity for public input, a public input needs to be addressed to the board president. Um, and there's never really an opportunity for the individual board members to respond back. You know, in, in fact, most of the time we don't get a response back at all. It's kind of like a one-way street. Um, but then outside of the board, if you ask a board member why they voted a certain way or didn't vote a certain way or why their opinion is X, Y, or Z, um, they say, listen, you know, I, I don't want to speak on behalf of the board. You know, you have to bring that to a board meeting. But then, so then you don't get feedback outside the board meeting either. So I'm just trying to calculate what's the, you know, the tone and tenor, what's the appropriateness of having an individual conversation with a board member and as a board member, you know, the, the appropriate context for sharing that because, you know, effective communication with the public and your constituents is kind of one of the main tenets of you know, being an effective board and being an effective board member. So I'm trying to figure out without running afoul of, you know, saying, you know, I'm representing the entire board, which, you know, if I'm elected, I would not be. I'm just trying to figure out where is that happy medium for having the conversation without having the conversation on behalf of the board. Right. And Doug, just so I, I make sure I have the question right. And, uh, it, you, it's kind of a two-part question. One, how do you talk to members of the public individually, and how do you talk at a board meeting to the public in general, uh, explaining your points of view? Is, is that the gist that you were looking at, both of those? That's exactly right. All right. Uh, okay. Carrier, uh, Carl? Um, oh, go ahead. You want uh, to start, Carl? Standpoint. Yeah. And this is kind of a complicated answer, but from a legal standpoint, uh, the purpose of the, of the board meeting, the public meeting, is for the public to actually observe the board's actions to see what they're doing with regard to public funds and uh, personnel decisions. Um, having the, the board being open to public comment is a way to make sure that the public uh, actually conveys their, their ideas, objections, uh, support to the board. But that's not really a for the board to respond back to the public. The way the public responds back to the board is by taking action. So when the board votes on something, uh, you can tell by that vote whether they approve uh, what the public is saying or whether they want to move in the same direction the public is 
or whether they don't. The vote of an individual board member, uh, you can see what happens um, at the public meeting and, and, and how they voted. And if you want to check the, the minutes, you can see a record of how they voted. But that's really the dialogue between the public and, uh, and the board is the board's actions as opposed to an individual conversation. Now, when you meet a person out in the street in pub, um, say at the supermarket or, or some other public location, uh, you can have a conversation about them, but we always caution board members when they're speaking individually or privately that they want to make sure to convey the fact that they're not speaking on behalf of the board because ethically they're required to do so. Anytime they're making a public statement, the ethics laws require that they ensure whoever they're speaking to that they don't have the authority to speak on behalf of the board and only speak as an individual board member. So that's why some of them, out of an overabundance of caution, are advising even in private conversations that they're not speaking on behalf of the board, and if you want to see what the board is doing, come to the board meeting. That way you can see what the whole board is doing, despite what any individual's uh, opinion might be or, or vote might be with regard to a particular issue. Because what really matters is what the board as a whole does and decides on that issue as opposed to an individual board member. Terry? Does that kind of cover your question? Well, hey, Terry, I, you can feel Terry do you have anything? On. Yeah, you know, and I just kind of want to add um, that, you know, as a board member, you know, you're out and about. You're going to face a lot of questions from people in the community. Um, you're allowed to tell them, like, what happened in public session. So if they say, you know, I saw on your agenda that you were, you know, uh, uh, approving a new principal, you can say, yes, we, we approved uh, Mr. or Mrs. So-and-so at the last meeting. That, that's okay to have that kind of a conversation. Um, when it gets into, like, how did you vote or who voted, sometimes that's a little bit after the fact, and I think it is advisable to mention to them that the board works on a majority opinion. So as a board member, I need to support what the majority uh, vote was. It doesn't matter whether you agree with it. I think a lot of times what we run into as board members out in public is they don't understand what our role as board members is. So you know, their idea of what your job is and your idea of what your job is are two different things. And I think we need to explain that to them first before you even give your answer. Um, does that make any sense, Doug? And, Terry, that's a very good point because law also requires that the board members as individuals support the actions of the board, even in cases mm -hmm. where they might not agree what the board has done. So that's Correct. why you may be getting less information than you're hoping for when you have these private conversations or these individual conversations. Doug, I think we're just uh, not uh, just yet. This, so this is Doug. I think we're Doug. just not getting any communication, you know, one way or the other. We see what happens at the meeting. You know, I attend them on a regular basis. Um, but the, the flow of information is always one way. Like there's never, you know, the public dialogue as to, you know, why we're voting this way or why, you know, you're not voting this way. And I'm not, you know, looking to see what goes on in executive session and kind of peer behind the curtain, but there's, you know, there's never any substance to, you know, what it is, um, you know. So I guess the, the frustration is, you know, there's supposed to be this communication with the public, um, but communication in order for it to be effective goes both ways. And we have a very one-way street in our district right now. Well, uh, Doug, I would just also add, uh, the board can also set as a goal that if they feel the 
and we talked about it before, a goal with the superintendent, which would be it, but it could be a board goal that they have to improve the communication with the community. Uh, and they could set a plan for uh, the superintendent, the administration set a plan to improve communication. So as the board's in majority agreement, uh, because it is hard to get that, that message out all the time. Uh, but that's where the board's role in that would be is to improve the public communication. If, if that's a board goal or a district goal. Um, and it sounds like you feel that should be something along those lines. It's actually a tenant of our strategic plan, um, but it just hasn't changed. Uh, anyone else? Uh, just real quick, I would say, I would say give it a oh. Having a strategic plan that talks about improving communication is, is one thing, and that's offline. And context obviously is important. Um, but I would still say that uh, having a policy in place where the board has to explain every decision is, is virtually impossible. Then I don't I mean, think that's the ask. I think it's I think it's having a conversation around some of the larger decisions um, and having that conversation be meaningful and you know even just have the board you know if they've received public input not just read off the last names of who they got public input input from but just you know, discuss what the public input was so that you actually know that they're opining on, you know, what came into the black box. Okay. And that certainly sounds reasonable oh, okay. to explain what these comments are. I, I think Doug's looking at a bigger picture uh, that the board kind of knows where they're going and maybe the administration and the administration knows where they're going, but the public is, or the community is a little, unsure where that direction is, uh, at least from the board meeting. So I would also say right. it's not just at the board meeting where you need to communicate. You need to be communicating as a school district in other aspects. You know, it could be the, the website, it could be uh, Twitter, it could be a lot of different ways of communicating the, the school newsletter, and maybe that's something where the, you know, the district can look at it improving because it may. It doesn't just have to happen at the board meeting for you to know what's going on in your school district. Okay, I have to move on. Is that uh, Doug? If, feel free to call any of us uh, or email any of us uh, afterwards. Thank you. I appreciate the time. Okay. Okay. Let's move on. If anyone else has any questions, we'll get to those. Um, uh, Carl, I want to go back to you, some of the legal requirements of a board that people, once they get elected, uh, they need to know that um, they have to do a few things. One of them is they have to be trained. Could you go over that briefly? Uh, I sure can. Pursuant to the uh, School Ethics Act, all board members have to go through four cycles or four years of training. Uh, the first year, there's a, uh, a four-tier component where they're going to go through uh, a, a round of training sessions, and we do offer a couple of different uh, methods of completing that first year of training. Um, we offer online training, which is uh, fairly brief. Uh, we offer a one-day training session, and we offer a weekend training session. Um, I highly, highly recommend the weekend training. Even though it's longer, it's a much more fulfilling experience. You have much more interaction with your fellow board members and with, with association staff and you get uh, a better, deeper understanding of the issues because there's just more time devoted uh, to, your, to your questions and to the topic. So first year, you're going to go through new board member orientation. Uh, that's the, one of the three modalities that I just mentioned. 
Uh, at that new board member orientation, you're going to hear a number of topics in detail, uh, the Open Public Meetings Act being the first one, uh, followed by an in-depth conversation of uh, the Ethics Act. I mentioned conflict of interest here, but there are many other issues uh, that are covered under, under ethics, including uh, personnel matters, personnel decisions, and volunteering, um, those types of issues. Also included in the first year course is policy and HIB, because as a board member, your primary concern is adopting effective uh, policies for the district. Uh, you're also going to cover finance, student achievement, and labor issues during that first year. Second year is devoted to finance. There is a um, single presentation for the second year called Gov2, uh, which is limited to finance, and all of your financial and budgetary questions are answered in that, in that course. Third year is student achievement. Uh, all of your curricular issues with regard to student development and student achievement are covered in that session. And your fourth year, or your first year of your reelective term, you go through Gov4, which is the legal update, all the case law and statutes that have been enacted um, since your first year in office. So you cycle through that every four years. Gov1, or new board member orientation, your first year. Gov2 and 3, your second year. And then the first year of any reelective term. So if it's your second term first year, you go through Gov4. If it's your third term first year, you go through Gov4. If it's your fourth year, Gov4, uh, fourth year, first term, you go through Gov4 as well. Uh, if you don't complete the training courses in a timely fashion, then we're looking uh, at the SEC be, uh, becoming involved and issuing a, a nasty letter to you about uh, attending training. So you don't want to have that happen. But that's the essential cycle yep. for your, your training requirements for, uh, for as a board member. And they have removed board members for not doing their training. That I know. Correct? They certainly have. They certainly have. All right, uh, Terry, I want to ask a question, and this is kind of a follow-up to Doug. Uh, I don't know if Doug's running for the board or not. I didn't ask him. Uh, you're a single board uh, – you're a new board member, and you want to make change. Um, and it's kind of hard if you're the new kid on the block. Uh, so let's talk about the relationship with the other board members. How does that work? Uh, and what is the role of the board president as you come on? You know – I don't think anybody runs for the board to do a bad job. So I think when people run for the board, they want to be positive. They want to, they want to say, I can contribute. I, you know, I would like to do this. I would like to see this, which is great. But if, you're, if you expect to come on the board and expect, you know, and a superintendent to embrace that your first month there, it's probably not going to happen. Let's be real about it. Um, I think the best thing that you can do is talk to your superintendent, talk to your board president, and say, you know, this is why I ran. These are some things that I would like to do. This is what I see coming in from my point of view. And find out from them maybe the best way to go about it. You know, you might find out that some of the things that you're thinking about, the board has also already thought about. Mm-hmm. So it's important, I think, that you know you walk in with a being positive um, and knowing that if you want to exact change, it's going to require on a nine-member board at least four other 
people that agree with you in order to do that. I think um, as a new board member, probably the most important thing that you can do up front is, you know, be honest about what you would like to do and listen a lot. Because you may have an idea about how the board actually operates and how the board runs, and it's probably not the actual way that it does. So I, I would... You know, let everybody know up front, hey, this is what I'm looking at. Um, don't expect it to happen overnight. And do a lot of listening early on. Uh, so the key is building a relationship with your, your colleagues as well as the superintendent and the administration uh, because you kind of have to get the majority with you uh, to be effective as a board member. Yep, and we talk about building, whenever we say building relationships, people think, oh, I have to be friends with them. You absolutely do not have to be friends with the people on the board. What you have to do is develop a working relationship, a good working relationship with them, just like you would in your workplace. Mm -hmm. You know, when you go to work, you're not friends with everyone there, but you have a good working relationship and things get done. Well, the, the same is true for being on a board of education. Right, and... um you can start that relationship. I get elected November sixth, or and it's finalized November ninth. Can I start? Uh, and maybe Carly wanted to chime in. You can have conversations with the superintendent, the, the BA, the current board president, just to find out about how things are done. Is that correct? Absolutely. No, I wouldn't. Don't be. Well, I wouldn't no. be afraid to reach out to them early on. I would say mm-hmm. that as a parent and as a regular citizen, that's fine. But I wouldn't do so in my role as a, a board member elect because as a board member elect, you really don't have any authority, and it's easy to misconstrue your actions as a, a potential or upcoming, incoming board member as um, inappropriate. So from a legal standpoint, I would say I would be very cautious about having those conversations uh, with superintendent or other personnel um, until you're actually, uh, or I'm sorry, in the role of a board member. As a citizen, as a parent, fine, not a problem. But they should understand that that's where you're coming from as just a citizen or a parent. To build on what Carl said, there are a lot of districts that reach out to their board member elects, and there are a lot of elected board members that also reach out. And a lot of times they get together before reorg, and they talk about what reorganization looks like and they talk about policy, and they talk about board governance, and this is the way we govern ourselves. And I think those are good things for board member elects to know. Absolutely. Um, certainly, when it gets into, like... I'm sorry. I was agreeing that if the board is reaching out and the board secretary or the board president has reached out, uh, then they understand the nature and the rules of that conversation. So it won't be just an individual board member uh, coming out to the board or or uh, an employee and seeking information, giving demands or directives, or there's less likelihood of that information, that conversation being misconstrued. Yeah, and I probably yeah, wasn't I, clear earlier, early on when I when I said don't be afraid to reach out, um, because what I'm saying is don't wait for them. Guaranteed, they probably will because that is what we we recommend. 
tell them best practice. Nine times out of ten, most districts reach out to elected, newly elected board members. But if you haven't heard anything, don't be afraid to call and introduce yourself and say, you know, is there any chance that we can get together prior to reorganization so I understand how this works? Yeah, and it's simple things yeah, you're, you're talking about, like when they're board packaging. I'm sorry, that, I'm saying you're, you're, you're speaking of reaching out to the board president if you haven't received that invitation, correct? Yes. Yeah, it just I, I think what Terry's talking about is more like when you get your board packet, how does it, you know, how do right. things, just the mechanics of being a board member. No, I think that's really logistical thing. I think that's fine. Yeah, logistically, packet. Oh, you know, when, when are the, What time should I be there? That kind of thing. Uh, all that's fine uh, in relation to the board president or the board secretary if they've reached out to you. Let me just move on, um, Carl. Let's look at another. People are running for the board. They get endorsements all the time. Sometimes they get an endorsement from the local union. Is there any repercussions to that? Sure. Uh, as a board member, if you run for office and are endorsed by your local teachers union or any other union that's uh, in your in your district that you negotiate with, it presents an issue for you ethically because the school ethics commission feels as though you might be biased uh, in favor of that union, or at least that endorsement creates the appearance in the public that you'll be biased in favor of that particular union. So the rules are that if you're endorsed by, let's say, for example, the teachers union, you can't be involved in negotiating with that union for the first year of your term and might even be the second or third year of your term, depending on what's going on with regard to negotiations. If negotiations are ongoing, if there's a contentious issue, and as we know, sometimes negotiations can take a year or more or sometimes two or even three years, it could be likely, it could be possible that you might be conflicted for your whole first term, depending on the cycle of uh, when negotiations are ongoing and when the matters are settled. So the general rule of thumb is that if you're endorsed by your union, then you're conflicted for the first year of your of your term. And therefore you can't participate in negotiations with that union. Now if your if your district has has different unions, say you might have one for the teachers and uh, one for your paras or one for your aides, uh, and if you're endorsed by the teachers union, but the para union doesn't say anything, and as long as they're separate unions and there's no linkage, then there's no problem with you negotiating with the parents' union, even though the teachers may have endorsed you. So it's really a fact-specific uh, inquiry and, and answer, as most of our, our answers are, when it comes to negotiations. Uh, I'm going to also move on to Terry. Uh, Terry, uh, and uh, kind of earlier Doug had alluded to it, you talked to board members parents and the community members talk to board members privately. Um, and, and I think Doug was a little frustrated sometimes. Um, they come to you and they, they complain about a teacher, they complain about a program, and the board member really can't do anything individually. They're not a manager. What should they do? And, what's, and I know you're going to mention uh, three-word chain of command. So why don't you uh, answer that? Yep, and I like to refer to it as the chain of communication because if you're having an issue, who is the first person that you should be talking about? And, you know, talking is communication. So if it's an issue with my child, then I should be addressing it with the teacher. 
if I've addressed it with the teacher and it still hasn't resolved itself, I, sh I should then move on to the principal and on up that chain of command um, until I have gotten my issue resolved. Um, as a board member, you're going to find out that, you know, a lot of people are going to want to give your their issues to you. <laughs> and you have to really resist the urge to get involved. Um, you can't because one of the tenets of the Code of Ethics kind of says, I will refer all complaints to the chief school administrator. So you need to remind um, you know, remind your community that as a board member that's not your role and that they need to take their issues up the chain of command, the chain of communication. Um, and if that hasn't been resolved, then it probably will be heard by the board at some point in time. But um, don't get trapped into thinking that you are the one that has to fix all these problems because that's not your role. You know, that is up to the, the people that are employed by the district to fix any issues that are out there. It's not your role as a board member to fix that for anyone. And, and that kind of goes back to... Board members misunderstand that in their role, is that they're not the fixers anymore, even though they are, all of them, all board members are very good at fixing things. Their role Absolutely. is to make sure that things are fixed, not to actually fix them themselves. Yep. Um. Uh, let's keep moving on. Uh, if anyone has any questions, we're getting towards the end. Uh, one, uh, dial one three four seven nine eight nine eight nine zero four and press one. Uh, and uh, Kristen will get your question, or you can just type it in the chat room. Uh, Carl, one of the things, and you kind of alluded to the role. What happens at a board meeting? The the official reason for a board meeting was for the public to observe. Uh, what was going on. And a lot of it has to do with the Sunshine Law. Um, could you uh, just give us a little overview of what the Sunshine Law is and how it works? And it, we, just sure. for our listeners, we do we do whole programs uh, that last nine, an hour to 90 minutes on this. So I'm asking Carl to give like a really brief overview. <laughs> okay, okay. So don't hold, don't hold up, take up the whole night on this. All right. So the Open Public Meetings Act or the Sunshine Act is the law that covers all public bodies in New Jersey and requires that they be open to the public if their public body has the right to either expend public funds or affect a person's individual rights. So as a Board of Education, the Board has to hold at least a portion of in open session, uh, actually hold everything in open session with regard except for eight exceptions uh, with which the Board is allowed to go into executive session uh, to discuss. Executive session matters include things like uh, pending or anticipated litigation. If you know the board's being sued, then they can talk about that in executive session because you don't want the public, that information out in the public because it gets misconstrued. Um, information gets out there all the time about uh, the negotiations, and it makes settling that much more difficult. Uh, purchasing real estate, same thing. If the public is aware that the board is looking to buy real estate, and sometimes that affects the price of that real estate, and we don't want to have that happen. If there are personnel matters, uh, obviously personnel matters are confidential. You can discuss those in executive session as well. So there are a number of, of, of exceptions to the Open Public Meetings Act that allow boards to go into executive session, but typically it's going to be held, the balance of it is going to be held in open session. Uh, there are a couple other rules which I, I don't want to get into, but once a matter does go into executive session, then board members have an obligation to 
make sure that that information, that discussion, remains confidential. Uh, they can't discuss it, can't disclose it, uh, can't talk about it to any member of the public, even their family, because it is confidential, and board members have been brought up on ethics charges for, for disclosing that information. Now, if a board member has a conflict, uh, because either a, a, a personal a personal interest in a matter, or because uh, they have a relative who is uh, in, employed in the district, then they're conflicted out as well. If you're conflicted out, that means you have absolutely no right to uh, to be in public session. I'm sorry, to be in executive session during the board's discussion of that matter. Uh, you can't receive any executive session information, no documents, um, no discussion with people who were in executive session. As a matter of fact, you have no greater right to the executive session information than the general public does, as long as you maintain that conflict. Once the conflict is cleared, then yes, you have the right to uh, access that information. And finally, what I would say as a short brief point is that just because information is uh, discussed in executive session doesn't mean it stays that way forever. Uh, there is a schedule by which the board should be going through and disclosing information to the public once the need for confidentiality has passed. Now, that need might be a month from now. It might be 10 years from now. But once the information does become public, it's okay to disclose that information either as a, as a general practice or OPER request, Open Public Records Act request. Okay, thanks. One final – that's quick enough. And if you get, actually, if you get elected to the board – I would recommend that you go to a program just on the Sunshine Law. Well, I would recommend a lot of programs, but that, that one is one up there. Uh, Terry, I'm going to give you one of the final questions. Um, you know, we talk about all the limitations, but uh, there are – for a board to be effective, an individual board member to be effective, we have a goal-setting process where they set the goals for the superintendent. They set the goals for the district. Could you go over that process? Because that's, I think, yeah, where okay. a lot of the board's authority is, and that's where they can get a lot done. You know, and early on we talked about what the role of the board is and what the role of the superintendent is. And the role of the superintendent is to manage. The role of the board is to provide oversight. So if you don't give the superintendent direction on where you want to go, how can you expect them to provide the managerial aspects that you want. So goal, goal setting takes that into account. So you sit down as a group and you decide, okay, here's where we are, here's our baseline, this is where we want to be, and these are the things that we need to undertake this year, these are our goals, in order to make sure that we get from A to B at the end of the year. So it's as simple as that, but you have to be consistent and you have to be persistent. Consistent meaning that you need to do this annually. This is a you know, once every 10-year proposition. You need to sit down and have an annual discussion with the superintendent. It generally takes place either at the time of the evaluation or shortly thereafter. You have the conversation to say, this is where we want to go. This is where we want to head. And you set goals to get you there. Um, and when I say be persistent, make sure that you get progress updates along the way so that you don't set goals in June and you don't hear about them again until the following May when it's time to initiate the CSA evaluation process. 
So you want to make sure that you're staying on top of this the whole time, whether it's monthly updates, quarterly updates, but you want to make sure you know where you're going. And that's one of the most important things uh, for the board in terms of evaluating a superintendent uh, is to make sure that – and achieving their goals is know that they're working on them. Uh, I know some boards do it at every almost every board meeting to see what yes. they did that, that that works towards their goals. So, um, some that do it at every meeting. Actually, um, so that brings us to the end, and uh, we actually ran over. Uh, so I'd like to thank uh, Carl and uh, Terry for uh, joining us. And I would like to say that if there's any school board candidates out there, they have any questions, to, to reach out to us, and we'll try to give them the best information we have. In fact, with uh, Carl's legal department, we did a whole – the 10 things every school board candidate should know. So you can also look at that where we get in-depth in on 10 different issues. So, uh, Terry and Carl, uh, I'd like to thank you for joining us. Great. Have a Great. good night, Ray. Everyone have a good night. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.